Okay, we're Psalm 13. It's where we're at this morning in our series through the Psalms. And, and this Psalm is a song that was written by David, and it is both a lament and a praise. And we've um, felt the sting a little bit this morning of, of this lamenting, haven't we, as we've had a uh, sister in the hospital who is, who is suffering this morning. And suffering is very real. And suffering is very difficult um, for us. But anyway, Psalm 13 was written by David, and it has often been called the How Long Psalm, uh, which is really no surprise when we look at the opening of how David opens this, this chapter. He's asking a series of questions, and he asks these questions, if, as we've read this morning already. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? And in David's concern, that is a really long time. He goes on, how long will you hide your face from me? You see, David finds himself here in great despair. David is a man of great tribulations and trials in his life, but he's also a man of great success and great blessing. If you remember back to, uh, to uh, David as a young shepherd boy, he has his really, really his first public display of, of success when he, as a young shepherd boy, stands, be, be, uh, stands before the great Philistine warrior Goliath. Remember that? The giant... And here this young shepherd boy is the only one with the courage to stand before him. And with a sling and a stone, David takes this giant down, this enemy of Israel. And this was a great success for God's people. But at the same time, it started a, a series of great difficulties and trials for David in his life. If you remember shortly after this, um, the people in the city are coming out to Saul. And they're saying Saul has struck down his thousands, but David has ten thousands. And this enrages Saul, King Saul. This enrages him. He is so jealous that he seeks David's life. And David is left to flee for his very life. You see, David is no stranger to these difficult situations. And he's no stranger to abandonment. If you remember back to chapter 12 last week that Pastor Hafler taught about, um, David felt abandoned then. He felt abandoned by the righteous people and in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 12, he says, The faithful have vanished from among the children of, of man. Everyone lies to his neighbor. See, he felt surrounded by wicked people. And he felt like God's people had vanished. And he felt abandoned. But now David finds himself in chapter 13, where David actually feels abandoned at this point by God himself. David is very open and transparent about his life. He's very open and transparent about the struggles that he deals with. And we see this all through the Psalms. And this is a gift to us as we see this. And even to the point of struggling with feeling like God has abandoned him, David does not hide this. But he's very open about it. James Boyce, in his commentary on the Psalms, he writes about a psychologist friend of his who frequently deals with depressed people. And one of the things that this uh, psychologist says is the, the amount of deep despair and false guilt in a and false guilt result in a feeling of a deep chasm between the person and God. See, people just feel like there's this distance between themselves and God. And that's true of, of all people, really. But it is also true of us as God's people at times, isn't it? And that's where David finds himself in this psalm as he cries out. Like there's a deep chasm between himself and God. And really, in our Christian culture of prosperity, prosperous expectations we don't expect this to be the case for god's people do we i mean we we kind of like to we would like to kind of buy into the ideas of this prosperity gospel that god just wants good blessings in our life right he wants to take care of us he wants to give us 
riches and, and keep us from difficulties. But friends, that is, that is just not the reality for the follower of Jesus Christ. We have great riches and great blessings. But life at times is difficult. In fact, Charles Spurgeon, in his commentary on Psalm 13, he says this, If the reader has yet found a, I'm sorry, if the reader has never yet found occasion to use the language of this brief ode, he will do so ere long if he be a man after God's own heart. You see, Spurgeon himself knew the depths of these trials and these difficulties in the life, and believers are not spared from this. And Spurgeon knew, as David knew, that God has, God has a purpose in these trials. You see, Spurgeon himself struggled with a great bout of depression due to a physical illness that caused great pain in his body. But you know, when God's people are desperate, they desperately cling to Him. And as we look at Psalm 13 this morning, we're not going to try to ascribe any particular event uh, in David's life to the psalm. We don't really know. And we're, not, we're also not going to ascribe any particular sin in David's life uh, to this uh, trial that he is going through. The text just simply doesn't give that to us. So why then does the Scriptures record a psalm like this? I mean, what is it that we're supposed to see and learn from this psalm? The psalm is really meant to be an encouragement to us. And as we go through, we'll see that, that even in great despair, God answers prayer. And this psalm is meant to point us to a God who saves. So as we look at this this morning, the psalm is really divided into three parts. In the beginning of the first two chapters, we see despair. David is lamenting and he's crying out. In the second section, verses 3 and 4, we see David's petitioning or his cry of, cry of prayer. And then finally, in the third section, in verses 5 and 6, he closes with trust and rejoicing. And as we navigate through the psalm this morning, I want us to pay particular attention to David's response to his difficulties and his anxieties. You see, David begins his psalm with lamenting and the questioning. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? You see, David, feeling that God has completely abandoned him, um, is desperate. And at times we have felt that way too as God's people. And there's a, there's a danger for us when we experience these uh, kinds of trials in our life. And really, when we experience this, there's really two choices that we have to make. Choice number one is abandonment of faith. God, you must not really exist. I don't sense your presence. So you must not really be there. And we've seen this in the New Testament when many people fascinated with Jesus followed him until things got difficult and they turned away and followed no more. But the second response leads to a, an appropriate, desperate cry to God for help. And this is where the psalmist finds himself. He's questioning God. But he's seeking God also. And you know, David was not the only one to feel abandoned uh, by God. Job had this experience. And Jesus himself even had this experience. If you remember Jesus in, in Gethsemane, he's agonizing about the death that is about to come upon him. And he's agonizing to the point of sweating drops of blood. And as they crucified him and hung him on this cross, Matthew twenty-seven forty-six records for us in about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know, Jesus is actually uttering the complaint of David in Psalm 22, verse 1, where David cries out, my God, my God, 
Why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? See, here's the point for us to see this morning that it is not just unrighteous people that suffer, but it is God's righteous. It is His chosen. And God uses these times for His glory and for our sanctification. You know, but the, re- but the reality for the true believer in Jesus Christ, <laughs> there is no greater feeling of despair when God hides His face from us. But then as His children, there has been no greater joy than when we see His shining face once again. And Psalm 13 presents both of these emotions to us, despair and confident praise. And be assured that this psalm is meant to point us to Jesus, our Rescuer and our Savior. So let's look at verse 1. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? Uh, The how long here is probably an indication that this trial in David's life probably did not just start. He's probably been in this trial for some time, and that is probably why it has led him to the anguish and the despair that he's feeling at this time. Andrew Fuller says this, it is not under the sharpest but the longest trials that we are in most danger of fainting. When Job was accosted with evil tidings in quick succession, he, he, he bore it with becoming fortitude. But when he could see no end to his troubles, he sunk under them. And that's a real danger for us, isn't it? When we feel like God has abandoned us, and this lasts for a long time, it is a real danger for us to sink under those. See, David's no stranger to this. He's no stranger to the abandonment. But he's also not a stranger to confident expectation in his God. If we look back to chapter 9, Psalm chapter 9, we see that David is praising God. And he says, you have maintained my just cause. He goes on in verse 6, the enemy has come to an end in everlasting ruins. And then he proclaims with confidence in verse 10, for you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. But in chapter 10, David is crying out, Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? And then he pleads with God, Hear the desires of the afflicted. Eventually, David finds himself in chapter 13, where David is crying out in his own afflictions. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? You see, this is personal for David, and in his experience, this leads to real difficulty and real anxiety. Notice the question, will you forget me forever? I mean, one can only imagine the amount of anxiety and fear that that would bring in. Is my God going to forget me forever? David is deeply concerned, and his concern is deeply rooted in his relationship with God. But here's the question. Can God ever really forget? I mean, does the omniscient, all-knowing God who knows everything, can he, can he ever forget anything or can he forget anyone? And he, the answer is a resounding no. He cannot. Look at the latter part of verse 1. Will you forget me forever? You know, this cry is echo, echoed by the Israelites in Lamentations when they're mourning the fall of Jerusalem and the loss of a nation. And in Lamentations 5, they cry out, why do, you for, why do you forget us forever? Why do you forsake us so many days? And yet, in the latter part of chapter 3 of Lamentations, God is going to reveal His purposes behind their suffering and their sorrow. And it was to produce a hope in Him. 
And then the writer continues. The steadfast love of, of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. And then he's going to answer the question. The question, will you forget me forever? Here's the answer. In verses 31 and 32 of Lamentations 3. For the Lord will not cast off forever, but though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. So will God forget forever? No. But we feel the sting of that, don't we? When we're suffering and we're in that trial, we feel the sting of that abandonment. In Isaiah 49, God is addressing Israel. And Israel says, But Zion said, The Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. And then God responds to them. Can a woman forget her nursing child? That she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget. Yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. You see, God does not forget. His memory does not fail. And David moves on to his third question. And I think this is really probably a more appropriate question for David to ask. He says this, how long will you hide your face from me? Because we know that God doesn't forget, right? He can't. But he does at times hide his face from us. And God hiding his face is really, really a medical, uh, metaphorical way of, of referring to his presence. God does at times veil his presence from us. And he has a reason and a purpose for doing so. But how does he do this and why does he do it? Well, I think to answer that question, we need to consider a couple of things that are true about God. And number one, that God is omnipresent. In other words, God is everywhere at all times. There's absolutely nowhere that we can go to be away from his presence. Jeremiah twenty three twenty four says this. Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord? See, God is everywhere. And in Acts 17, 28, it says, For in him we live and move and have our being. See, there's really nowhere that we can escape God's presence. So is he ever really gone? No. Sometimes it feels that way. Sometimes it feels that way. And the second thing about God to consider is that God will never leave us. Hebrews 13.5 says, Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For He has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And in Matthew 28.20 He says, And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So we see these truths given to us in Scripture that, that God is always present. He's all places at all times. He will never leave us. And so if this is true then how and why does he hide his face from us? I mean, what does that look like? John Piper answers this question for us like this. He says, when I, when I say that sometimes God withdraws his presence from us, I don't mean that we are forsaken by our covenant God. I mean that the manifestations of his presence are limited. He doesn't withdraw his covenant commitment to us or his sustaining grace from us. What he withdraws is the sweetness of his fellowship from time to time or the conscience sense of his power. And he has his reasons for doing this. And we experience that at times, don't we? We experience that. And when we experience it, it's difficult. But for God's people, it drives us to him. You know, Job had these similar experiences. In fact, Job actually asked 
the same questions that David did in Job chapter 13, verse 24. Job asks this, he says, why do you hide your face and count me as your enemy? Just a few verses before this in, in verse 21, Job actually says to God in his anguish, he says, withdraw your hand far from me and let not the dread of you terrify me. And yet shortly before that, Job is saying this, though he slay me, I will hope in him. Yet I will argue my ways to his face. You see, Job, just like David, showed a faithful confidence despite terrible circumstances. And we can see that hope that they had by the fact that they're still crying out to God. They haven't abandoned God. God truly hasn't abandoned them. But they know they're desperate for God to answer their pleas and their cries. We've seen this this morning already, but Psalm 42, David again is, is expressing in his deep depression when he cries out, Why? He says, why are you so downcast, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Then he offers this hope to himself. Hope in God. For I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. You know, that that verse became um, almost kind of like a life verse for me in a phase of my life when, when God allowed me to go through an extended, long dark period in my life where I really felt as though God had abandoned me and I felt like I was losing my faith and I wrestled and I thought nothing good can come out of this but in my anguish I came across that verse and I would preach that to myself hope in God for I will again praise him my salvation and my God David, despite his many, many trials, maintains this confidence in God. And how does he do that? I believe it's because of his repeated experiences. Because he has gone through this time and time again, and he has seen his God rescue him. John Bloom, who is a staff writer for Desiring God, he writes this about assurance. He says, assurance grows by repeated conflict. By our repeated experimental proof of the Lord's power and goodness to save. When we have been brought very low and helped, sorely wounded and healed, cast down and raised again, have given up all hope and been suddenly snatched from danger and placed in safety. And when these things have been repeated to us and in us a thousand times over, we begin to learn to trust simply to the word and power of God beyond and against appearances. And this trust, when it is habitual and strong, bears the name of assurance. For even assurance has decrees. You know, what we oftentimes see as painful and useless, God is using for our good and for His glory. In my experience, I thought it was useless. God, what good can come out of this? I'm losing my faith. But in the end, I found He was restoring, removing sins out of my life. He was being good to me. And it was a gracious thing. God is sanctifying and he's building up our confidence in him. David continues in verse 2. How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow all the day? You see, David is, is receiving no comfort from his God at this point, And he's crying out to God. How long? He's actually taking, he's trying to take comfort in his own soul. And I don't know what he's, I don't know what he's doing here. Whether he's, he's just simply... 
preaching God's truth to himself and trying to find confidence or comfort or what he's doing. But David is in anguish. And he, he finds nowhere else to turn but into his own soul. He continues to have sorrow in his heart. I did a, uh, an inter- internet search on how the world looks for happiness, and I came across this article by Forbes. And here are the top eight things that people desperately want but cannot attain. They desperately want but cannot attain. And there's a category and there's the biggest challenge. And for the sake of time, I'm not going to read the biggest challenge, but, uh, but here's the list. Happiness, money, freedom, peace, joy, balance, fulfillment, and confidence. The eight top things people desperately want but cannot attain. The writer of this article continues, The reality is that it is a tough world out there with many challenges we're simply not prepared to face. But throughout those challenges, there are countless ways we can remain true to ourselves, leverage our gifts, and foster our self-esteem and passion for life and work. And we can continually build our confidence, happiness, and fulfillment despite these challenges. For that, we need an abundance of self-love. And also support from others who don't want to tell us what to do, but instead want to help us follow our own internal system and beliefs. And we need to believe in ourselves without fail, despite the evidence around us that says we're not ready to soar in creating what we long to do. That sounds great, doesn't it? But the reality is, even according to the title of that article, things people cannot attain Because we cannot attain these things on our own, can we? We rely on a powerful God who loves us. But here's the problem. If we're not careful in our suffering and anguish, if we're not careful, then then we can can turn into ourselves and we we can start to look for satisfaction and comfort in our own ways, can't we? But you know, this is not ultimately the comfort and peace that David was asking for. It's not what he was seeking and longing for. David desired the joy of his heavenly father's attention, the experience of fellowship with the Savior, and he wanted to know that God still loved him. That's what David was longing for. And that's what he desired. So why is this why are experiences like this so Agonizing. I mean, why was it so agonizing for David? And why is it so agonizing for us when we experience this? In Keller's book, The Reason for God, Keller asks this question. He says, why was Jesus much more overwhelmed by his death than others have been, even more than his own followers? And remember that Jesus, um, when Jesus was praying that, that this death would not come upon him and he's, and he's agonizing to the point of sweating blood, Keller continues, he says, the Son of God was not created, but took part in creation and has lived throughout all eternity in the bosom of the Father. That is in a relationship of absolute intimacy and love. But at the end of his life, he was cut off from the Father. Keller further points out, there may be no greater inner agony than the loss of a relationship that we we desperately want. You see, when, when we value our relationship with our God and our Savior like that, these experiences are horrendous. They're painful. And they're agonizing. And as I study through the psalm, I felt like I could append these words by myself through my experiences in my prolonged darkness. 
And I know that in the depths of my own agony, the deepest longing in my soul was to know that my God still loved me and to see his face. And you know what was true for me? It was true for David. This fight is real. And David's fighting against a real enemy. And who or, who or what is this enemy? We don't really know. David says in the latter part of uh, verse 2, he says, How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Uh, we don't know who the enemy is. Some people think it was Solomon. Some people think that it might have been Absalom. And some people think the enemy was death itself, which might be fitting because he goes on in verse 3 to say, Light up my eyes lest I sleep the sleep of death. But we're really no, given no insight into specifically what or who this enemy is. But David is concerned about the enemy. But you know what? David is going to make a turn in this anguish. David is going to make a turn that's going to result in confident praise. And I want us to jump to the end of the chapter for just a moment. And I want us to look at verses 5 and 6. He says this, but he says, But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. I mean, how, how does David make this change? How does David move from this despair and anguish that he's in to this confident praise? Well, let's go back to verse 3. That's where we begin to see this. Excuse me. That's where we begin to see this turning point for David. And it starts with prayer. He's not asking the questions, how long, O Lord? But he's desperately crying out to his God at this point. Look at verse 3. He says, Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. The NIV translates this, Look on me and answer me. And the New Living Translation says, Turn and answer me. And the New International Standard Version says, Look at me. You see, David in his experience feels like, like God has turned his back on him. And, and in David's plea to, to turn would cause God to turn around and David would see his shining face again. And God would see David's face and he says, answer me. And yes, David wants his, his questions answered. But you know what? He wants fellowship with his God. He wants to see his face. And he wants to have that fellowship and hear his God speak to him once again. This is the comfort that David is longing for. Restored fellowship with his creator. Charles Spurgeon says, A hidden face is no sign of, of a forgetful heart. It is in love that his face is turned away. Yet to a real child of God, this hiding of his father's face is terrible. And he will never be at ease until once more he hath his father's smile. And that was true for David. And it's true for us because we long for that, don't we? We long for that. David continues. He says, light up my eyes. You see, David's eyes have been, become dim with depression. And they may have been dim with illness too. But David is desiring that God would turn and that his, his bright countenance would shine on him and light up his eyes and give him hope. James Boyce says, to say that God's face is shining upon us is a way of saying that God is being favorable, favorable to us or blessing us. So if God is hiding his face, what does it mean then? Or, or what this must mean is that times of blessing or favor have seemed to cease. And that's where David's at. He feels like these times of favor has ceased and he's longing for God's face. He's, and, he, and more than just desiring God's blessings, he's desiring that relationship to know and dwell in confident hope 
Ephesians 1.18 says, Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you, what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints. You know, David longs to dwell confidently in the experiential hope of his God. He continues on, Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. You know, for some reason, David feared that his, this despondency would actually lead to his death. And whether it was an illness that would kill him, whether it was a human enemy that would take his life, we really do not know. But one thing that we do know for certain is that David's grief led him to the right place of prayer. Peter Craig concludes this in his commentary. He says, there is no more or there is more than a prayer for physical health in the psalmist's plea. At a deeper level, he desires to return to a close fellowship with the Lord. And that is the heart of this psalm. It's not the purpose of the psalm. The purpose of the song is to point us to a God who saves. But the heart of the psalm, the heart of David here, is to return to close fellowship with his God. And verse 4 says, Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him, lest my, vo- my foes rejoice because I am shaken. Again, we don't know who the enemy is, but David does not want the enemy to win. David does not want the enemy to boast. But then we move on from there to glimpses of restoration. And in the final two verses, But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. The beginning of that there, I have trusted in your steadfast love. You know, the Hebrew, Hebrew word for this steadfast love is hased, which is the, the strongest word for love in the Hebrew language. David knows that God is a perfectly loving God. And it is because of the love of the Father that David can rejoice in the salvation of his God. And he sings praises to God. What a change in David's countenance at this point. I mean, to go from this despondency, this depression, this despair, and this anguish to this kind of praising. What a change. And this should give us confidence in God, right? Because he does answer prayers. And he is worth praising. He is worthy. And David holds fast to the one in whom he is trusting. And he rejoices and sings to the Lord. He has been freshed. Spurgeon goes on to say this. He says, it is worthy to be observed that the joy is all the greater because of previous sorrow. He continues, all the powers of his enemies had not driven the psalmist from his stronghold. God is good and he sustains us. David stood firm. And finally, let's look at the final verse, verse six. He says, I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. You see, David knew God was his rock and his salvation and he knew that he, did, that he, just, he desperately needed to rely upon his God. And I believe that David knew that he, was rely, that he relied upon God for ultimately his eternal salvation. But he also knew that he needed to be spared and delivered from this trial that he was in. 
And he desperately cried out to his God for this. H.C. Leopold says at this point, faith has climbed out of the lowest depths of despair where it had well nigh perished into the full sunlight of godly hope. Friends, that should give us hope this morning. God brings us out of despair. You know, David may not have been delivered from his trial at this time. We don't know. But we do know that even if he was still in it, he was, he was crying out to God, his God with confident hope that he would save him. He expresses confident expectation and hope in a God who saves. And he, and he realizes that God has dealt bountifully with him. In other words, he has bestowed upon him many good gifts. See, David was trusting in his God for his salvation. And friends, if you have placed your faith in Jesus this morning, you have been dealt bountifully with. I mean, God has sent a rescuer to us who paid the price for our sin. And by grace, through faith in him, we're forgiven of all sin. If you have trusted in Jesus like that, you've been dealt bountifully with. And that gives us reason for rejoicing. If we, if we look back to Luke chapter 7, um, it records, Luke records for us this situation where, where um, a woman comes and anoints Jesus' feet with oil. And then here's an, accus- an accusation that is levied against Jesus by one of the Pharisees. Um, he says that, man, if he knew what kind of woman that is, he wouldn't even let her touch him, for that woman's a sinner. And by the way, he, the Pharisee apparently says this in his own heart. But Jesus discerns his thoughts, and he knows this. And Jesus responds by saying this in Luke seven forty seven. He says, Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. And I think David knew that reality. He knew the abundance of God's salvation, and he knew the abundance of God's forgiveness. And he rejoiced in that. And he understood that. Psalm 13 should lead us to see that God never leaves His children. But He loves us, and He sanctifies us, and He grows us. And this psalm should take us to the foot of the cross where we see Jesus as our hope and our rescuer and our Savior.